0: Think about the last time that you changed your mind. Might be kind of difficult, eh? It might be a uh, change in parenting style or approach. It could be maybe a change in the time you dedicate to your work. The amount of time, the quality of time. It might be a discipline or a habit that you've incorporated into your life. You thought you didn't need before, but you recognize, if I get this added into my life, it will actually help me and serve me. Give me a happier life. It might just be something as simple as the, a menu choice, right? You went with the uh, chicken enchilada over the beef last night, right? And you said, I'm going to change my mind. Big mistake. <laughs> beef is great, especially an enchilada. But then there are the more serious times when truly changing your mind is a little, little bit like the, the notion of diving off the high dive or stepping out onto the stage in a school play to get those few lines you memorized. Or as you get older, maybe a little bit like standing over the edge of a bungee jump. Or looking over the cliff of a 200-foot rappel. And you sit there and you know and you keep hearing how good it will be for you, how much fun it will be for you, how much more you'll experience life if you just step out. Yet the longer you wait, the further fear settles in, doesn't it? Starts to entrench and grip you to the point where it almost becomes hopeless any longer that you will actually ever take that step. I still remember the time, my older sister, I still remember her shouting at me (laughs) Up at the high dive, what will it take for you to take the step to get off that thing? Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse 9. As Jesus heads south towards his cross and rescue plan in Jerusalem, people approach him with a deeply entrenched opinion about a very important topic, something very close to them. And we'll see this morning that it's deeply entrenched at multiple levels. If presented with a hard truth from someone who is at least the wisest man who ever lived, and at most the very Son of God, will such people who've so long held on to such a deeply embedded conviction, actually be willing to change their minds? Will you? Let's read together. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. we will read through verse 9. Jesus left there, and he went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, It is because of your hardness of heart Moses wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is God's word. Jesus starts with marriage, and then he moves on to divorce. If we kept on reading, which we will next week, verses 10 through 12. Then he goes into the house with the disciples, and they asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife still marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And I've decided that it'd be best to follow a similar pattern. Uh, not miss Jesus' primary emphasis on marriage, even when he specifically asked about divorce. So that's what we'll do this week, this Sunday. And then at the same time, not wholly ignore that real. And very 21st century question as it was back then. Well, but what about when you have to contemplate divorce? And so we'll do that next week. I Feel like it's appropriate that we take time to do both on this very sensitive subject. So this week, marriage. Now, who here is married? Raise your hand. Quick, show of hands. You're married. Keep them up. Who here wants to be married? All right. No, no. Keep your hands up. I don't want to alienate anyone. Okay. Now, who here knows someone who has struggling with an unhappy marriage? Really, some people do not have their hands up still, okay? How many people know someone who's contemplating doing something about that unhappy marriage? All right, so if your arms aren't getting tired yet, the bottom line is this touches everyone, doesn't it? God has purposed something amazing, amazing for the marriage relationship. And it's not happiness, nor is it an easy life. Yet, such is the deeply entrenched, dare I say it, default purpose for getting married. A happier me and an easier life. Don't do it enough, but sometimes I do ask couples, mostly admittedly in premarital counseling where you feel kind of bold enough and bold to ask this question because they're kind of here to ask you about the relationship, so you feel like you can ask The question, why are you marrying this person? Not in a mean way, but why are you getting married to this person? That sounds nicer, doesn't it? Inevitably, the top two answers you'll hear is because they make me happy. That's the first one. if it's not because they make me happy, it's because we love each other. I love them. But then if you dig deeper, why do you love them? I guarantee you one of the responses will be because they make me happy. (laughs) Two persons entering into a, a lifelong commitment with largely an unmasked stranger at this point seeking from the other person happiness, fulfillment, contentment, that sense of wholeness that only they can bring them is often a recipe for at least failure if not total disaster. As I once heard, as I first heard this when two older men were at a filling station and I overheard them saying about marriage, marriage is like two ticks and no dog. Everybody know what a tick is? Raise your hand or else I'm going to have to explain what a tick is. All right, thank you. Get their food from a dog. Sorry to be graphic. When you have two ticks and no dog... What do two ticks do? Doesn't end well. (laughs) The religious Pharisees come to Jesus not for a marriage seminar, but for a messianic inquisition. Yeah, they bring up marriage and divorce, but they really come for a messianic inquisition. But Jesus obliges to both, as he often does. They bring up divorce in order to trap Jesus, as we're told here by Mark. Whether it's because they heard the very high standard, high-heart standard of the Sermon on the Mount, or Jesus' reputation just preceded him, Most certainly already suspected that Jesus was more stringent than they, in the culture in which they lived, about the permanency of marriage. You see, their deeply entrenched opinion is that marriage is permanently purposeful To the degree that it results in a happier me and an easier life. And we'll see this this morning. Just two words tell you, by the way, about their backwards approach to marriage the word lawful in verse two, and the word allowed in verse four. What's allowed? What's okay? What's not against the law for my marriage? That's that's usually a bad way to start talking about the most important relationship in your life. It's like learning to fly a plane by first looking at the manual for how to most safely crash it. <laughs> you learn to drive or to fly the plane well. That's the idea. To take off, to get to 30,000 feet to land safely. Or it's like going to a bank to secure a loan, and then asking the lender, um, uh, how many times am I allowed to miss my payment before I default? Like, if that's your first question, you're on a, that's, that's like a bad road. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. Why are you getting into this again? Again, for, for so many, the first time, though, I hear about marriage from them, about their marriage, it's, is it okay to get out of it? What's allowed for me to kind of, where's the exit door, just in case? We'll see here for the Pharisees, their opinion about a happy life, sorry, a a happy self and an easy life is entrenched at multiple levels. It's entrenched at the level of their sacred religious text. They justify their opinion through their sacred religious text, which in fairness is Jesus' sacred religious text also. They inherited through the opinion of their moms, their dads, their grandfathers, their great-grandfathers. It spanned generations. So that's another issue. They got their opinion, or at least it was solidified, because it's the majority view of the society, the culture in which they lived. Finally, the consequences of their opinion touched the most intimate an inescapable aspect of their life. All right, so there are multiple layers for the reason they want to say, whoa, 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 permanency in marriage. If it's not to make me happy, if it doesn't make my life easier, let's find an escape clause. First, we see that they justify their opinion through their own sacred religious text. Jesus asks them, what did Moses command you? Without batting an eye, they responded from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, almost like it was a memory verse. Like your kids, like, what was your memory verse today? And the kids back there do a great job memorizing Scripture, memorizing God's Word, getting it in their hearts. And they're like, let's tell you, Jesus, we're ready. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Let's read that together. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because... He has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. And she departs out of the house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, that's the first husband, who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Don't bring the sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. In the Old Testament, it's because of the hardness of heart, as Jesus says here, divorce is permitted, but not prescribed. All right? There is sufferance for it, but not sanction for it. In other words... God through Moses describing, look, sin is in the world. I recognize it has created this unique hardness of heart. So if people do sin, I want to protect people here. I want to love people here. So the certificate of divorce was commanded to defer thoughtless and impulsive action by husbands. Especially because men are more prone to stubborn fits. Right, into and, and impulsive responses. Many studies have shown that. And also because you know men in your life. <laughs> God knows that. He knows how we're designed, He knows how sin particularly affects men and husbands. And so, having a certificate of divorce, you had to go and get written by the leaders of your community, forced you to just take a walk, right? Walk it off, as some of us men say. Which sometimes could save the marriage. Instead of the man just declaring as he could before, I divorce you. It's actually helped protect the marriage and protect the woman and protect the man from making a terrible mistake. It also provided a woman freedom to remarry without the stain of sin on her reputation. Marriage, and not for the reason that the rumor mill keeps regurgitating, right? Want mm, to hear about her? Mm-hmm. Right, that kind of moment. I hear she's a little bit, you know. But no, here, here, here is what happened. It wasn't for that reason. It certainly wasn't for adultery. Believe me, there was stoning for that. Let's not get into that though today. What's for what you're thinking. So I just want you to see how the goodness of this command, God's love in this command, but also, it was around because of a hardness of heart. Now look, the big question in this passage, though, is what does Moses mean, or God through Moses here, by some indecency? She no longer has favor in his eyes because of some quote unquote indecency. He can then issue a certificate of divorce. But what does it mean by some indecency? The Hebrew translation would translate it out literally the nakedness of a thing. Something revealed, but that doesn't really help us so much. There were two big schools of thought way back when. I got to tell you, well published for ancient Near Eastern literature. Well documented for way back when. These two schools of thought. One was from the rabbinic school of Shammai, which said that the the uh, some indecency in a marriage could be it must be some big offense, short of adultery, but still some major offense. Maybe something like a woman repeatedly disrespecting her husband in public. Then there was another school of thought: why you get a divorce? Some indecency, and that would be interpreting some indecency as something very trivial, almost anything trivial. <clears throat> Literally a spoiled dish is one reason mentioned. Like a poor performance in the kitchen. Right? If a man got his, oh man, partially cooked white rice again. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see the reheated hamburger meat sliced up and put on there. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's over. I'm no longer happy with you. The point for us is this. The Bible is an exhaustive treasure house of truth. But you can always find the right verse to justify your heart. You can always find the right little text where you can say, look, 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 look here. So you can find little pieces here and there. As we'll see, Jesus is going to point that out. Here's the second reason. This is so entrenched for them and also for us in our society. This opinion about marriage is inherited through the generations. The marriage is only somewhat permanent, as long as it makes me happy, makes my life easier. Generations of ancestors, hard hearts, time, plus watching their parents and their grandparents work through marriage, whether it be the hardness of their marriage and they stayed together, or how quickly they got divorced. It works on both sides, doesn't it? Not surprisingly, the school of Hillel's opinion, you can get divorced for trivial reasons, gradually grew more prominent. As one historian put it, quote, divorce was relatively easy in the first century, and the Pharisees and rabbis intended to keep it so. This next point is it was the majority view in the world they lived in. It was the majority view, and when it's close when it's a tie between what the Bible says and you can't really get it and what the world so adamantly believes, religious leaders usually opt for the world, even pastors. Let's accommodate the world. Let's give in to that. We don't want to offend. And the world works in a couple major ways to convince us that our highest marital aim ought to be our own happiness. Number one, seduction, sex, adultery fuel nearly every consumeristic effort, don't they? And I mean consumeristic broadly, whether it's convincing you to do something, whether it's convincing you to go to the movies, whether it's convincing you to get a certain kind of drink. I'm telling you guys, I, sometimes on Saturday mornings, if we don't have soccer that morning or we don't right now, I'll, I'll turn ESPN on while I make pancakes, fair admission, sports center's on. I can't leave it on during the commercials anymore. Every commercial. It doesn't have to be a bad movie. Usually it's a one movie in the commercials. I've timed it. Once I hear the trailer for a movie, I can get in there and get quickly, skip ahead or pause it. But now it's like anything, a vodka drink, whatever, you know, my son asked me the other day, you know, dad, why do women wear such stretchy clothing and they barely move their legs when they walk? Well, (laughs) sorry. I I, I don't want to answer that yet for you. But this is it. We can't. We, we just got we better. Just accommodate that. Not just that, but newer is better, isn't it? We also live in a world that says newer is better. That affects everything, even new relationships, new intrigue. Fourthly, here's the other reason why it's so. They we're so entrenched in this opinion. I think we are too. The consequences of marriage's permanency touched the most intimate and inescapable place of their lives. Now I would say ours as well. What's remarkable is that. This is a religious sect in the Pharisees who constructed 617 additional rules just to help them follow God's rules in here. 617. They were incredibly fastidious. They created 39 categories of work that would break the Sabbath command to rest. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You can do this. we watch them keep it. People watch them living this out now. Going through the external motions while internally, even Jesus points out, they're, they're full of bitterness and judgment. And you can escape this for a while. You can, you can escape living from the heart by showing something else on the outside anywhere but your home. You can't escape your home. You can't escape your bedroom. You can't escape your bed. It's the one place where you can't really hide your heart, can you? Someone once asked the great evangelist George Whitfield uh, if some distinguished so and so is qualified to be an elder in their church. George Whitfield had the great reply of, "He said, I don't know. I never lived with a man. He knew you 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 can be a certain way here, but when you get in there, that's when your heart really comes out, doesn't it? Our most important and telling character witnesses in our home." What I want to do before moving to kind of part two is just to take a moment to relieve the stigma and pressure of feeling like you have to portray this happy and easy-like Sunday morning marriage. Yeah, I'll forget the comment. Oh man, it's easy for you. You're the pastor. You have Katie. I know Katie. She's your spouse. You have, you, you have good, like, I've seen your kids, I work with your kids in Sunday school, they actually love, they love the Lord, they're nice, at least half the time. <laughs> Let me tell you, friends, I want to say this, <clears throat> while I believe God made it clear to me when I was to marry Katie, that I was to marry her, oh I man, I had mixed motives in married her. I thought a lot of this, it'll make my life more full, it'll make me happier, and it'll make my life easier. At heart, I was a little bit of a 1 Corinthians 7, 9 dude, which is better to marry than burn with passion. It's time. Not only that, but we don't have an easy marriage. Our marriage, I would describe as relatively high maintenance. Notice I didn't call her high maintenance. I said our marriage. Don't misquote that later. And in part, because of that, it's made for a happier marriage. It's gradually over 12 years made our marriage more joyful because we've worked hard at it. You see, I found the person whom I can serve and invest in for the rest of my life. But does anyone start out marriage saying that? I found the person I can serve and invest in the rest of my life who can be my ministry. Who says that? And yet Jesus moves us towards this purpose by deconstructing Ours and the Pharisees' deeply held default purpose for marriage. He flips the script on the Pharisees, and this is pretty cool. There was this old uh, TV show, which you can only see on something like Nick at Night, called uh, Columbo. It was back in the 1970s, in which starring Peter Falk. He would calmly listen to the stories of scoundrels as he investigated murders and crimes. and He would collect data, he'd read their body language, he'd just listen well. And just when you think the scoundrel, the thief's going to get off, he kind of turns back to him and says, just one more question. Says, just one more question. Now, now you have CSI Miami, where it's David Caruso taking off his glasses and saying something. when he goes, ow, like that. But back then, it was just one more question. And this is exactly what Jesus does here. When Jesus asks, what did Moses command you? Of course, remember, I said they were immediately ready with Deuteronomy with the minutiae of God's law due to a hardened heart. To help them deal with marriage until someone could ultimately give them a new heart. Give them a heart of flesh. <clears throat> what they don't do when he asks them, what did Moses say? They don't give a passing thought to the book of Genesis, which Moses also wrote. Jesus says, you know, okay, I'll respond to Moses with Moses. And he just flips that script on them. It's brilliant. There would have absolutely been someone who would have walked away saying, Jesus, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. We use Moses to trap you through divorce. You use Moses to restore marriages back to their created purpose. It's brilliant. He deconstructs in doing this by turning the table It makes them think, oh, I see. I see in my formerly held, deeply entrenched opinion, actually there's something deeper here about marriage, also written by Moses. (laughs) Perhaps if you allow the Son of God to change their minds, will you? Here's God's purpose for marriage. God's purpose for marriage is gospel reenactment. Gospel reenactment to live out the dramatic reenactment of God's redemptive story in Jesus on the stage of life. We have, a, we have a stage behind us, don't we, here? And on this stage, people get up during the week, as they will in the month of June. I know there's a play going on here, okay? And they'll, they'll reenact some story, maybe even a true story. Friends, that is marriage, for those of you who are married. That every day, you get to reenact The story of Jesus Christ to an onlooking world, to your children, and to most importantly, to your own spouse. It is a wonderful privilege. No other human relationship is assigned this particular privilege, by the way. Genesis predicted it. Jesus fulfilled it. And the Apostle Paul taught it. We get to reenact it. I'll just walk us through it this morning starting in verse 6, where Jesus quotes Genesis 127, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. God made them male and female. So the first thing we learned about God's purpose in marriage, is that the gospel and its reenactment requires two unlikely partners. Two unlikely partners. God made them male and female. So on the one hand, in the gospel story, you have uh, someone who loves to make themselves happy. Someone who likes life to be easy, who likes to satisfy themselves. That would be, bing, 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 us, sinners. Then you have God who wants to make the other partners and the Godhead happy, who is self-giving and ultimately self-sacrificing as we see in Jesus Christ. That's why Romans 7 and 8 is so remarkable where Paul says, you know, for a righteous man... No one's going to die. Maybe someone's going to die for a really, really good man. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Jesus died for us. You see? It's more compatible if you get two partners together who are pretty good people, good, good righteous people. But what about someone who's an enemy and someone who's a lover? And you bring them together. And that's what God did in Jesus Christ. Two unlikely partners, us and him. We reenact that in a marriage relationship. Male and female. Unlikely partners. Very different. Some have said very different. Maybe even opposite. In personality. In preference. In temperament. I don't think I need to elaborate on that. Well, I'll just agree. We'll move on. Very different. But God has this habit of love. He loves to display his glory through the most unlikely scenarios, through the most unlikely relationships. He loves it. So that's the first Aspect of the gospel reenactment we get to live out. We see the second one here in verse 7, where Jesus quotes from Genesis 2.24: Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The gospel and its reenactment requires someone to take the first step. To leave comfort, to leave what they have known and take the first step into the abyss. <laughs> but for us. The bride of Christ, the church, Jesus has left his father's side. He becomes the world's first missionary. He did everything possible to relate to us. He took on flesh as his outer garment. He endured the worst opposition humanity could offer. He experienced every temptation, the Bible says. Can you imagine that? In marriage, it's the man who steps out. Jesus says here that man leaves his father and his mother. He's the one God calls to take the first step to risk, to pioneer, to endure the unknown. And the good news, men, is you just have to try. (laughs) You just have to try and then ask some good questions afterwards. Like, for instance, just try to make a dinner reservation. Just try to turn off the television, to step away from work, to put down the phone long enough to listen to what she's saying, and even ask a thoughtful follow-up question, like, how does that make you feel? <laughs> just use that. Start there. Or say what they've said back to them in your own words. So you're saying, like, just do that. And then later ask, how did I do? Like, men, you have this out. You are allowed to say that. But also in this relationship, if your men step out, someone in the relationship also has to embrace Right? And we see that here in this passage. Hold fast to his wife. To hold fast to someone means they've got to open the arms. They've got to open the arms and welcome. Jesus comes with the, to us with the good news. He initiates. He says, here, I'm seeking you. I want to give this to you. And we have the choice, right? Reject or embrace. Wives, you have that same choice. Reenact that in marriage. Embrace your husbands. Affirm their efforts. Be slow to offer correction. Encourage them. We also have a major challenge here, though. It's like the trust fall. Remember the old trust fall when you fall backwards like this into someone's arms? You have to trust that someone's going to be there to embrace you. If you take that step out in the abyss, someone's going to be there to embrace you. And from the wife's side, you have to trust that you won't always be left there by yourself. Waiting. How do you do that? Faith and trust in Jesus is absolutely necessary. Uh, in his book, The Marriage Builder, which is one of the great books on marriage, we have it here in the back. If you want it later, psychologist Larry Kraft has this great illustration, and it features a man or a woman up on a cliff, and she has a, a rope around her waist. You'll see it up there, and the rope is tied to God, and over her is you know she can step out into the abyss. The abyss is called of rejection. That rope is like faith. It exists, but it hangs limp until in a marriage relationship we step out and take a risk. And that's when we really, truly rely on Jesus. When we step out. When we say, you know what, Jesus? I'm going to trust you. I'm going to step out in this relationship. And if no one's there, I still have you to satisfy me. Verse 8, they shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. The gospel in its reenactment requires dying so that there can be only one. It requires dying so that there can be only one. And I've, I've worded this very purposefully. Die to self, not for the relationship, but for the other one. And when you die for the other person, when you die to your preferences to your wishes, to your wants for one. That's how you become one. You hear all the time about the importance of compromise in a marriage. And it's occasionally necessary, hear that, but also hear that as a basis for marriage, it's a myth. It will fail you. A couple reasons why that's the case. When you compromise as the basis for your marriage, both parties feel in the end like they sacrificed more. Like they gave up more so that you hold back just a little bit of bitterness. When conflict comes, wait a minute, I gave this up. Wait a minute, we agreed on this. I didn't say that. I did say this much, but not that much, you see. Not only that, but when you compromise, you can't enjoy what you gave up. So in other words, if you do something your husband enjoys or what your spouse enjoys, you're like, well, I'm only doing this because, you know, I get the other thing later. That's kind of your heart. When you give yourself, you give yourself the opportunity to experience joy. When you just say, I'm going to give myself fully to this, and I'm going to trust God for the rest. When that happens, when both parties do that, both parties are served and served well. Think of it like a lake. A healthy lake, right, needs water flowing in and water flowing out. If it's only going out, what happens? A lake dries up. If water's only coming into a lake, though... You know, you're, you, you know, receive, receive, receive. The lake floods and everything dies. The flow out is obviously your spouse, but the flow in has to be gospel love. It has to be the love we experience through the good news of Jesus. Otherwise, it's manipulation, isn't it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give out so that you give me in. But if you keep going back to the cross every day of your life, relying on God's great love for you, what happens? You're filled up. To give out. That person recognizes, wait a minute, this is real, genuine, self-giving love. And they just might want to give it back. Jesus died to give himself to both us and the Father that we might all be one. This is in John 17. Even greater sacrifice because Jesus died to self on both sides. He was scorned by man, separated from the Father at the cross. He completely gave. Last one here, verse nine. God has, what God has joined together. Let man not separate. The gospel and its reenactment requires God. It might be the simplest point, but maybe the most important. People tried to separate Jesus from the Father all the time, right? When Jesus said He and the Father are one, they tried to stone Him. They tried to wedge them apart. They are not the same. Nothing, though, could keep Jesus and the Father forever apart. Imagine if after we've run to God, after we seem kind of distant to him, we've rebelled against him, not showed up, he separated himself from us. He said, nope, that's enough. Imagine that. Instead, we're given the great promise found in Romans 8, 38-39. Here's the New Living Translation. Nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't, life can't, angels can't. I'll just move on. The powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we're high above the sky or the deepest ocean, nothing in creation can separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. Friends, knowingly or unknowingly, many, if not most people, will try to separate you away from your number one ministry, and that is your spouse. It might be a good friendship. Someone just thinks they're giving you your time, being a listening ear. Or a buddy just says, come out with me after work. And he does that on the rag. I'm just being a good friend family, family that never really accepted your spouse, never really embraced your spouse as part of the family. So they compete with your spouse for love and loyalty and time. And finally, ourselves. You give yourself over to ease and self-happiness instead of giving yourself over to your spouse. Let me just encourage you with two things. Number one, keep Locating and relocating the source of gospel love, the cross of Jesus Christ. Keep going back to it. Remind people about how true it is. Remind people it it exists outside of how you even feel about yourself that day. Pray for spouses in your church. Pray for your marriage. Ask a community group leader, a friend, a pastor to pray even after this service. It's worth it. We have this unique privilege to put on display before the world a gospel good news reenactment, not just for the world, but for your spouse. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Father, I confess that so long, so deeply held in me, it still kind of lurks in there is this mindset. To make my marriage about my happiness, to my marriage about my ease and my comfort. What will cause us to change our minds but you, Jesus? And what you say here has been your plan for marriage since the foundation of the world to leave, to step out, to sacrifice. To rely completely on you for love, to keep us together. Please, please, Father, there are going to be some here today who are saying, "Oh yeah, 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 whatever." That's a long sermon. Blah. <laughs> Change our minds by your Holy Spirit through your Word. Help us begin today to commit ourselves to a gospel reenactment, to loving Jesus as you loved. We pray in your name. Amen.